a midweek edition of the VanCast for you as uh, we've got ourselves a guest today and we're really looking forward well, to... Well, actually, actually J-Pat, sorry, can I jump in? I was thinking maybe I could start the podcast and then I'd drop it to you to introduce our guest. Not bad, I like that. Yeah, welcome I... to the VanCast. We've got a special episode to you for you today. Drop pass to J-Pat. And then I fumble the puck in the neutral zone, and well, hopefully, no, hopefully that's not the case. Hopefully, I get a controlled entry, and we set up on the power play and go to town like the Canucks did a year ago. Not so much this past season, uh, because we know that the power play went from fourth overall in the NHL to 25th, and there were a number of circumstances. And we're going to get into this with Newell Brown. This is going to be terrific. I'm really looking forward to picking his brain about the power play, the details of it, but also the fact that he was here a decade ago when the Canucks got within a win of winning it all. And uh, we record this on the, the 10-year anniversary of Game 7 of the 2011 Stanley Cup Final. So lots to get to. Newell Brown's going to join us here in a couple of minutes. Uh, before we do that, though, Tom, just a quick thought, because uh, on our, our first podcast of the week, you talked about a piece that you had written that was posted at The Athletic about, mm-hmm. you know, the value of some of the Canucks unrestricted free agents, uh, the guys that they have to make decisions on, Edler and Hamannick and Brandon Sutter as well. You've pushed this now to the two key RFAs, Pedersen and Hughes, and sort of taken a, a long, hard look at, you know, their value, their true value, and again, trying to peg what these contracts might look like when they finally put pen to paper. Yeah, and you know, I look, I think it was more than anything it's just a long view sort of big picture uh strategic assessment of of what does this game score value added model tell us about how these two players project and how should that influence Vancouver's thinking in contract negotiations. And you know, one thing that is immediately clear is that it's all it's hard to make a safer bet in the NHL on a long-term contract than Elias Pettersson, right? Like this guy is in an extraordinarily rare cohort of like 17 forwards who've scored more than 0.9 points per game in their first three seasons. Everyone on that list is like a superstar with the exception of uh, Paul Stasny, who's just a first line center. Like, oh no, just a first line center. My goodness. Uh, extraordinary company. And, you know, the club probably doesn't have the flexibility to go long here, right? There's a reason everyone's talking about a bridge being the most likely outcome here. And, Honestly, that's probably a little bit unfortunate, frankly. Um, as for Hughes, you know, Hughes's game score value added projection has dipped massively as a result of his defensive performance last season. And, you know, while the expectation now is that Hughes, in fact, will go a little bit longer than Pedersen, at least what the model suggests is that the massive year-over-year variance in Hughes's performance in, in his first two seasons actually probably makes a pretty strong case for going a little bit short uh, with Hughes just before committing the type of term and treasure uh, that you might want to, to to lock him up. All of that said, though, I mean, if you're going to bounce on one guy or if you're going to bet on one guy bouncing back significantly, like, don't you want to bet on the super elite defenseman? <laughs> yeah, I do. <laughs> and so yeah. And so that's one of those instances, too, where... You know, what the model tells us can be instructive, but I think common sense, hockey experience, and, you know, our lying eyes all paint a very flattering portrait of what Quinn Hughes is going to be in this league for a very long time. And and for me, anyway, I, I bet strongly that it's closer to what he did as a rookie than what he did as a sophomore. You know, it's funny because, like, he only played half the season, Pedersen, right? He played 26 games, he missed the final 30, 
And yes, they missed him. Obviously, they missed him. They missed him the power play. We'll, we'll talk to Newell about that. Mm-hmm. But I don't want to say the market has soured on him, but it, it, it feels in some ways like the market has forgotten already you know, just how truly dynamic and electric he was in that rookie season and then followed it up with his second year. Like that cohort that you mentioned, and you've floated this before, but like when you see those names, and we're going back to, is it the lockout season at 20, like 94, 95. 94, yeah. So, yeah. We're like, 25 plus years. Yeah. Like, it's inc- it's incredible company and, when and you see And it's a who's that. who. It's a who's who of the most lethal scorers, right? Like, it's Forsberg, yeah. it's Korea, it's Malkin, it's Crosby, it's McDavid, <laughs> it's, you know, Marner, it's just uh, Ilya Kovalchuk, Danny Heatley. Like, it's an incredible, incredible group of players. Uh, as elite as a cohort can get. And, you know... I mean, if you do that over three seasons, right? If your injury-plagued season still results in 21 points in 26 games and 10 posts hit, like, my goodness, are you special. I really don't think Canucks fans should lose sight of exactly what Pedersen is because what Pedersen is is already a star and more than likely a player of historic significance in this league. All right. We've got Neil Brown standing by. We'll get to him here in a sec. It's been a week now since the Vancouver Canucks announced their coaching staff for next season. Unfortunately for our next guest, Newell Brown, uh, he has not been retained by the Vancouver Canucks, making him an unrestricted free agent in the coaching world. But uh, we're going to put him to work here on the VanCast. Newell, thanks so much for doing this. And uh, I know, uh, you know, not the best circumstances, obviously, but uh, boy, we appreciate you taking a little time and joining us here on the podcast today. Yeah, my pleasure. Uh you know what? I've always uh, welcomed change. It's been worked out uh, well. And one thing about this business is very volatile. Change occurs. So uh, I'm looking forward to moving on. You had four good years this time around with Travis Green and Nolan Baumgartner. I mean, is, is that a difficult discussion to have when they make changes and ultimately you're the only guy that's uh, not coming back for next season? Um, well, you know, it's, uh, I like the way Greener, uh, said at the end of the year as a party, uh, we had a, we had a parting and, uh, Travis and I had a lot of discussions, uh, especially the last part of the season on various subjects. And, uh, you know, don't forget his extension didn't come till the 11th hour. So, um, I don't think his, his path was clear either, but, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's one of those things I'll just keep between myself and, uh, and Travis and, and go forward. But I can say that uh, there's no bad feelings. Uh, Travis is a great coach. Uh, we've been close for a long time uh, since I coached him really in Anaheim way back in the day. And uh, they're going to do great. And sometimes, uh, you know, it's good to get new voices on a team and get some new fresh ideas. And sometimes that means you got to you got to change things up a little bit. And, you know, um, sometimes also the media and the fan base, there's pressure. Um you know, you got to show that you're, you know, some good optics at the end of maybe a tough season and, and show people that you're doing things. And sometimes it's the coach in the last year of his contract that, uh, you know, you can look at and it's not too hard to do. But um, uh, it, it, the coaching staff was is fantastic. Like uh, Travis and Bomber and Kinger came in this year and Manny was with us. And uh, we just had a, a fantastic group. I loved every minute working with them. Uh, everybody worked hard, no egos, you know, just, uh, worked together as a group and had a lot of great discussions. And whenever we came to a decision, we walked out the door as a United group. And, uh, I think Travis knew everybody had his back at every step of the way. So a lot of fun. And, uh, you know, I had a chance to be around for two of the most exciting times in 
uh, Canucks recent history, um, Stanley Cup finals, a couple of presidents uh, trophies first time. And then this time getting into the bubble. And uh, I mean, that was great. That was fantastic. You, when we won games, we were, the guys are so excited and so happy. Like everybody was literally dancing in the room. I think you've seen some of the videos yeah. of what happened. You know, and six months later, you know, it just shows you how things can change in sports. Yeah. I mean, we could probably keep you for an hour with this one question, but like, how do you sum up the past 12 months for the Vancouver Canucks? As you said, from the high of coming out of the bubble and it looked like you guys were on this launch pad with all this young talent to the season that you had to endure, the COVID uh, break in the middle, obviously, and just the overall disappointment. Like how tough have the 12, the past 12 months been? Well, uh, okay. So I think we were in the bubble about six months ago, right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> what is time these days? Exactly. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> less than a year anyway. Yes. <laughs> okay. Maybe a little bit more than six months ago. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, uh, the, the rebuilding process was, was great. Um, I think you, I think we get an idea of how hard the, the rebuilding process can be. I mean, we looked like we were turning the corner when we were in the bubble and, uh, you know, we had, we had a, we had a really, really good run there. We had a, a veteran core. We had a healthy group. We had top young players and, uh, we had a great run there, but I think it tells you how, how tough rebuilding can be and that every, and you, it takes, it's hard to turn that next corner. Um, you know, you need layers of prospects coming in year after year. Um, you know, you look at Colorado and you see McKinnon's comments. They've been going, they have a great team. They've been trying to, you know, get through the third round uh, for years and it's still hard for them to do. So, um, you know, get, making that next step is, is a really hard thing. It's one thing to get, get some good prospects, get some good draft picks, get some good young players in, into your lineup. But you can see how deep like Las Vegas is in some of these teams that are, that are playing right now. It's so big, so strong, so deep. Um, you know, you look at you look at Las Vegas and their second power play unit is Smith Carlson, Marcheso, and P- Pietrangelo. I mean, holy smokes. Um, that tells you the depth of some of these teams right now. So uh, making the next step is, is a hard thing to do. And I think uh, sometimes the expectations get a little high. Um, you know, we always we always uh, want to go as far as you can. And they say, yeah, you just got to get in. You just got to get in. That's true to a certain extent. But, um, you know, it's always nice to to be able to build up all those assets and have that depth of talent in order to ensure you can, you can make that uh, get to the, the promised land of winning the Stanley cup. Now, Newell, you're going to be able to tell that we appreciate uh, having you on because this is going to be a, you know, a 50 mile per hour fastball right down the center of the plate. But it does, it does <laughs> occur to me that, you know, in your last season, in your first tour, right. With the Canucks, uh, you had the lengthy Ryan Kessler injury. This time around, you had the Elias Pettersson injury. Uh, how much did Pettersson's absence impact your club's power play effectiveness, in your view, this past year? And what sort of went wrong with the power play after it was so elite in the nineteen twenty campaign? Um, yeah, I think you can break it down into three into three sections. Number one, uh, the beginning of the year, you know, we look at analytics after every after every game, and our analytics were strong. And doesn't mean, I mean, the bottom line is you have to get results. You have to score goals. Uh, we were doing everything but scoring goals. So we figured that we just keep on the same path here. Eventually, uh, 
Petey's going to stop hitting crossbars and goalposts, and uh, we're going to start to we're going to start to put put the puck in the net. Um, and you know, by March, it took a little bit longer than we wanted it to, but by March, uh, first few weeks leading up to the COVID outbreak, we were we're running at a 30 percent clip. So felt like we turned the corner. Uh, Petey's huge, uh, you know, a huge asset on the power play. Obviously, uh, I think over the long term, you feel the effects of that because he's the type of player that can make something out of nothing. And that's what these great power plays can do. You think they're trapped. You think they're cornered. You think they've got no options. And all of a sudden, they pull something out of their backside, and uh, you're getting a great scoring chance or scoring a goal. So I think all the top power plays have those kinds of guys uh, on both units. And so I think that that was uh, that hurt us quite a bit. Um, and, you know, probably our depth, uh, you know, putting that next player into uh, into that unit, maybe our depth was great. Um, and then after COVID, uh, you know, it was just, uh, we were in a funk. Our whole team was in a funk. You know, and we went uh, for a stretch there. We, we only won three games in 10, three out of 10. And, uh, so that was really difficult and it's not hard to comprehend based on what our players went through mm-hmm. with the COVID outbreak. Not only did we have tons of players get it, but we had families get it like pregnant wives and kids and extended family. And when it gets to your loved ones, that's, that's pretty tough too. So, um, yeah, uh, as far as, uh, you know, just put a bow on the, on the power play stuff. It was just one of, it was one of those years I could say. And, uh, you know, you maybe, maybe you can sum that up for our, for our whole team that it's just really tough to accurately, accurately assess or evaluate our season based on the schedule at the beginning and at with COVID in the middle, um, really hard and you know with all the injuries that we had Mott played 31 games Roussel played 21 Beagle played 25 Petey played 30 Sutsy got hurt Millsy missed three games at the beginning of the season when he didn't have COVID mm-hmm. um, so I th- think it's much better to uh, much better reading on our team uh, how we looked in the bubble when we did have that uh, that full team together and uh, we're firing on all, on all cylinders and Noel I, I want to touch on the outbreak because of course uh you know when the club returned it took you an additional week uh to get back uh, now you know obviously this is a personal matter so uh, i'll understand um you know if, if you decline to answer or what have you but i, I do want to ask if there's anything you can share with us about your personal experience going through uh the outbreak that the team went through and, and how you reacted to all of your colleagues and you know the players uh getting sick around you as well yeah it was crazy um you just we didn't realize that the ver- it was the variant that was, was so contagious going through our team. And, you know, you're sitting there and you're going, oh, okay, we got one player, now three, now five, now seven, now 10, now 13. And the numbers just kept escalating. And then, like I said, it spread to some of the outside family members too. So we probably ended up with like 40 people, um, you know, with the, from our, our players and extended family ended up having it. Some people got sicker than others. Some people got it pretty bad. And, um, you know, some people, uh, like for me, I got uh, my first COVID shot one day, the next day I found out that I tested positive. Oh. So I had really, yeah, I had really mild symptoms, uh, to begin with. Um, and then about 14 days in after I had been back, uh, I'd, 10 days, they let you go back and start working again. Mm-hmm. Uh, at 14 day, on, at day 14, I had a little bit of a temperature. Uh, I didn't feel bad, but I had a little bit of a fever and because the variant was uh so devastating to our group they're very cautious at that, that time and they just said you're up for a week 
So that brought me uh, in missing the first two games coming back from COVID. Whereas, you know, I, I could have bitten the bullet easy. I wasn't feeling that bad. So fortunately I didn't really get that many tough symptoms. Um, and, uh, but you know, when you hear about, uh, you know, the pregnant wives and uh, guys sick sitting in their basement, looking out their window, watching their kid play outside and their first uh, on one of the birthdays, you know, you just the human side of this. I can't I, like our guys. Um, I, I, I can't say enough about how well our, our group uh, handled it and how like heroic they were uh, about going through this, uh, this devastation that went right through our team and uh, spread to their spread to their immediate families. It was hard. It was tough coming back, and I know that uh, with this variant, uh, it, it it's uh, it's more vo- uh, volatile, I guess you might say. But it also it stays in your system longer. It doesn't go away as fast as the regular one does. So um, guys are out there playing, and they weren't feeling good. And so, I mean, that's uh, it's it was pretty emotional to see what was going on and how how hard we how, what the guys did to to overcome a tremendous amount of adversity there. We were there in the rink, uh, you know, fans watched that first game back, the one that got pushed a couple of days and, and you beat Toronto and, and you could see what it meant. Like, it, you know, it was a win, but it was more than that. Just have it with what you guys had gone through. So there were some highs, but you know, these are professional athletes. You've been at this a, a long time, Newell, you're in it to win it. How difficult was it to play out the string and play those final couple of weeks when the playoffs were starting and you guys were shoved to afternoon games? It kind of felt like the league wanted to sweep those games under the rug a little bit. Like, how difficult a scenario was that for professional athletes? Yeah, that's always hard. I mean, it was doubly hard this year because, uh, you know, we're playing while the playoffs were going on. I mean, that's, that's, that's unheard of. Uh, we're kind of like an afterthought in hockey. Um, but again, uh, our guys are so professional, uh, and we were putting to, to to together the same type of preparation that we would at any other time. And yeah, it was d- deeply disappointing at that time to kind of realize where we were, but we knew we had to put the work boots on, uh, show up, play the games, do our best, and even at, you know during the games where we're giving a lot of guys looks uh, to play their NHL games, uh, we're playing with a pretty depleted lineup. Um, you know, I think we still got some some good evaluations, and the guys uh, did as best as they could in a in a pretty tough situation. Tom touched on the power play. I just want to go back there briefly because we can't have Newell Brown on the VanCast without asking the drop pass question. I don't know if you hear it, but like we see it all the time in social media and you know hosting radio shows and people try you know get rid of the drop pass, and yet it's everywhere in hockey, and and it can be an effective tool. Uh, just take the floor here and just tell our listeners, you know, the benefits of the drop pass on the power play through the eyes of a guy that has been doing this for a long time. Uh, okay. I think uh, if you look at the first of all, we don't do anything that we think is not going to work. So we're always at the top of the league in terms of uh, we do our, our analytics in terms of uh, percentage entries into the zone. So that's the bottom line. Um you know, a lot of teams, we started it pretty much uh, back in 2011. Not very many teams were using it. I don't think any team was, uh, but the Sedins were great at it. So it's kind of uh, evolved from there. Um, you know, obviously, it's it's hard to defend. Teams are trying to come up with schemes to stop it, and there's all kinds of different variations that they're trying these days. Um, you're still watching teams in the NHL playoffs. Everybody's using it. Um, we did use... Um, we did use a lot of different breakouts too this year. I don't think people 
maybe noticed that as much, but we had, we, it's not the only breakout. It's our, it's been our pretty much our primary breakout that we've used because it is so effective. And if you do it right the first time you're in the zone every time. Um, so when we're executing at a high level, uh, it's, it's good. And, but at the same time, uh, you also have to have, uh, some variations, uh, some different kinds of breakouts. The, the drop is not a speed breakout. It's more of a, you know, you're, you're two on one in your way up the ice, uh, making these short 15 foot passes. You're breaking down the, uh, every team wants to stand up the blue line. You're trying to two on your one, your way, uh, into the offensive zone at the blue line, making those little short 15 foot passes that are, that are hard to defend. Cause you're always got it. You always have a two on one. Um, and it helps you carry the puck into the zone more. So, you know, there's lots of lots of uh, good things you can say about it. I and I can see the fans' frustration uh, when we're not doing it well and we're not executing it well that uh, we get stopped at the blue line and um, you know it doesn't look as effective. But um, yeah, I think uh, over the eight years that I've been here, the power play has been been pretty decent. We've had lots of top five, top ten finishes, and. Um, um, you know, we've used the the drop quite a bit, but uh, there's lots more aspects to the power play than just the breakout. Did I answer your question? Yes, that was <laughs> terrific, and I think uh, honestly, yeah, terribly instructive, and and I think the the listeners will will appreciate that. Well, and let's let's stay on talking technical aspects of the power play because you know, if imitation is the <laughs> sincerest form of flattery, right? We're seeing a lot of uniformity in terms of power play sort of tactics across the NHL. I mean, I, I don't know of a team that doesn't use a one, three, one in zone. Uh, the drop pass is uh, effectively ubiquitous. Everyone uses something, some variation of it, whether they're dropping two guys on the strong side on their strong sides or what have you. Um, as that's become life, like life in the NHL for a power play coach, Newell, how, how do you sort of stay ahead in a world where effectively everyone's doing the same thing? Yeah, I think you don't, I think um, it looks like everybody's doing the same thing and maybe, uh, you know, the, I don't ever use the terminology one, three, one. We go, go by concepts and, you know, one thing I'll take the criticism for this year was our power play didn't have as much movement as it's had in the past for one reason or another. It's not that we didn't talk about it, um, but uh, maybe it's because we, you know, we had to, constantly be making adjustments and changing the personnel in there. Um, but, uh, um, yeah, I think, um, there's a lot of variations inside a one, three, one that you can do changing the shape of the power play, moving uh, a flanker, one flanker up, one flanker down. Um, you know, there's all kinds of things like that, that, uh, you can see within it. Um, I think, um, some teams get kind of stuck by being too predictable and, you know, Teams, every team, if you see the same thing all the time as a PK unit, you're going to devise ways to stop it. You're going to get your, your penalty killers are going to get used to, you know, seeing the same thing all the time. So I think it's, uh, I think it's good to find some new uh, types of things that you can utilize on the power play outside of just the standard one, three, one, have some tricks up your sleeve, uh, have some more movements, uh, create some more confusion for those penalty killers, uh, multiple reads, multiple, um, multiple threats, those types of things. And I also, I mean, I've been racking my brain at uh, trying to come up with something else that's going to work well um, against the one, three, four check besides the drop. And, you know, you can see there's a lot of smart ho people in hockey and there's uh, people use different kinds of breakouts and some are effective for a short period of time. 
But um, where's that next uh, evolution going to be? When's the next, you know, drop pass uh, trend, new new breakout going to be that everybody wants to use and catches on in the league? Maybe where you're at the forefront of uh, creating that scenario. That's what I'm constantly looking for. And when you look at your two tours, right? You had the first time around the Twins, Kessler, you know, Samuelson, Erhoff, Edler, relatively veteran group, right? Uh, sort of all told. Um, in Arizona, mm-hmm. in Arizona, when you had no sort of right shot point men, right? It was it was rotating Redding Verbata high, right? Uh, another sort of cerebral veteran player this time around. Yep. This time around, mm-hmm. it was younger players, right? Like younger players were leaned on to do the bulk uh, of your club's damage, uh, whether it was Besser, whether it was Hughes, whether it was um, Pedersen. Uh, what challenges did it pose working with young players in a five-on-four scenario? And what can you tell us about sort of what you've seen from the evolution of, you know, Besser, Hughes, Petey, um, with the man advantage during your time here? Yeah, well, I think uh, just to go back a little bit, uh, you talked about when I was in Arizona and when I was here the first time, it was mostly a 2D, 3 forward setup. Uh, now it's gone 1D, 4 forwards almost exclusively, except you see uh, Vegas is using 2D a lot. Some teams are, have gone back to that. So that's the trend that's going on right now. Um, but, um, yeah, um, with the young, with uh, just the last four years, I think the, our first year, it was fantastic to – be with Hank and Danny and see them have a fantastic year on the power play. And our team had a really good year on the power play as they're in their last year uh, of playing in the NHL. It was, uh, it was a lot of fun to see them score that overtime goal. And I think this is their last points. They got uh, four and three overtime goal. Uh, Danny shooting, uh, Hank uh, passing to Danny, Danny shooting it and Eddie screen the goaltender, um, you know, just to see them go out on, on such a high note. And then the next year with Hank and Danny leaving, now we have some very young players that are cutting their teeth. Um, Bo, Bo, Petey, Bess, are now they're, they're becoming now the guys at a very young age that it turns into more of a de- developmental year and uh, learning on the job, uh, cutting their teeth at the NHL level and being a number one power play. And it's different when you have Hank and Danny out there that you just, you know, they're running the show. Now it's your turn. and. So I think that that second year we we had really good uh, development, and then you could see the fruits of our labor the following season when we got uh, we added JT to the group, which was huge, and then we got back into the top five again. So um, that's kind of the evolution of uh, of this of this round uh, <laughs> that I've been with the Canucks, and it's <laughs> it's been fun guys to work with. Uh, Husey's awesome. Petey's Petey's really good. Brett, uh, Brock is fantastic. Bo is becoming a great captain and has really mastered the skills of being in the middle of the ice on the power play, that middle man position, uh, a lot like Bergeron does for Boston. Um, so it's great to see to see that type of thing. And then JT added to the mix. You know, he's just got such a hockey brain. Like he knows, like he's, he's really, really smart. Um, he sees a lot of things out there. And um, I think with the, with the power play now, it's a big part of it is collaboration and not just me telling them what to do, but, uh, all the whole group uh, working together, coming up with with the plan because um, you know that's that's the way it is these days with with the players. They're they got long term contracts. They're making a lot of money. They got to be part of the process. And you find out that uh, when they do, when you do give them that, and they do take more ownership, that the results uh, are way better than it's just if it's just one guy telling them what to do. 
No, we talked about Daniel and Henrik and your time working with them. Obviously, uh, the run to the Stanley Cup 10 years ago, uh, then at the end of their career. And now there's this talk that, you know, they're going to be back in the organization at some point. We're all kind of sitting waiting for an announcement. Uh, just, I mean, you've crossed paths with so many people in your hockey career. Uh, but what about the chance to work with, you know, they're so unique in the fact that they're identical twins and guys that were able to take their games to the highest levels. Like when you look back on your opportunities, both, you know, at the height, but also towards the end, um, you know, how fondly do you reflect on the opportunity you had to work with Daniel and Henrik? Well, I'm going to throw the cliches out there, but <laughs> the, hey, they're cliches because they're true. Um, I mean, I, I feel like it's been such a privilege and an honor to work with Hank and Danny, not only for the players that they are, but for the people that they are. Um, their leadership, their dedication to the game, their work ethic. You've heard all the stories about them being the top conditioned athletes every season, and they didn't change no matter how much success they had. They still had the drive and the determination. Um, and I think the one thing that, uh, that I remember most about them is how humble they are, um, uh, filled with confidence, uh, filled with competitiveness, but just totally humble, down-to-earth guys. You can have sit down and have a coffee with them anytime and have a great conversation and not even any superstar, uh, a hint of a superstar mentality at all. So you learn from these people. They're great people. And it's uh, one of the great thrills that I've had in my, what, 24, 25 years in the NHL, uh, being able to coach Hank and Danny. They were such a part, I mean, obviously a massive part of what you guys had here 10 years ago. And as we record this, it is the 10th anniversary of Game 7. We know you as a pretty positive guy. Uh, do you look back fondly on the run or does June 15, 2011 still nag at you a little bit? Yeah, well, you know, I've had a chance to lift the cup in Anaheim. That was amazing. And then... Uh, couple years later get to game seven lose and lose that game seven I mean so many great memories of working with that group of players and you can go up and down the list and I can go name player after player after player and I guess you learn um, through those situations that you win with good people that team was filled with good people um, and yeah, it was devastating. I'll never forget that game seven. I think I, I you know, it's stuck in my mind more than winning the cup is, uh, losing in game seven, um, because it is devastating. But I think, uh, in the end, it was a great season. The guys came to camp and you could tell, you could feel it in the air. It was cup or bust. It's cup or nothing. Like they, those guys, our whole team was on a mission and, um, we remained on it throughout the entire uh, course of the season, fought the adversity, went through the playoffs, uh, some hard, hard, tough games. And uh, getting to the Stanley Cup uh, game seven, the Stanley Cup finals is, is not a bad, is not a bad season. Um, so I think uh, I'm going to look at that as a really, really fond memory. Newell, are you able to take us back 10 years to the day and just sort of describe what you experienced uh, in the wake of that defeat with the riot, like what was your game night like following the game seven disappointment? Well, I just remember um, the only thing I remember is, is uh, two things. We we're sitting in our office and like I was sitting there beside bones and we both had our head, our hands buried, our heads buried in our hands. And it was just total silence everywhere. And then uh, about 15, 20 minutes later, you could hear boom, boom, 
boom, boom. <laughs> and that was the music coming from the Boston Bruins dressing room. <laughs> and then uh, we all wanted to get out of there. And then we found out that there was a riot downtown. So we had to wait, I think, till 1 a.m. Uh, to uh, to leave the building. So, um, yeah, that's what, uh, I mean, I only like to look at the positive things. But, uh, you know, you asked me the question. So that's uh, that's kind of what I remember as uh, as you know, what happened once we got back into the dressing room. Of course, we went around and hugged every all the players and, and that type of thing and thanked them for, you know, <laughs> amazing, uh, amazing season. But, uh, yeah, that's what it was. And, Newell, you've worked on the staffs of, you know, head coaches like Randy Carlisle, Dave Tippett, Alain Vigneault. Uh, what, for fans of this team, like, what can you tell us about – Travis Green as a head coach and, 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 you know, a boss, like managing a bench. What, what is he like as a coach relative to some of the other coaches you've worked for during your NHL career? I say tra- I, Travis is a great coach. He's, he's good at everything. He's good at the X's and O's. He's good at the motivation. He's good at the running of the practices. He's good at communicating with the uh, young and old. Um, he's, uh, he's a workaholic. Like uh, I know I feel like Greener, Greener leaned on me quite a bit. I, over the four years and, and, you know, it was great to work with him. And like with greener, you get, it's 24 seven, you get texts at 10 o'clock at night, you get texts at six o'clock in the morning, you get texts at one in the afternoon. So, you know, it's like uh, you're on call, but that's the way he, uh, that's the way he approaches uh, his job as the coach. He's, he's on it all the time. Um, and I think he's, uh, he's a really good bench manager. He, uh, he's got, he's got his, his matchups and he watches, he's very, good at watching how much time on ice every player is getting so that, uh, you know, the guys that need to get more are getting more and maybe the guy's not playing as well. He's not getting quite as much, et cetera. But uh, I can't say enough. I can't say enough about Bomber. I don't think Bomber gets enough credit either. I think he's a, he's a fantastic young coach. And you can just see, uh, I noticed the comment by uh, Hughesy at the end of the season, what he said about him. And um, mm-hmm. he's a fantastic job with the, the young defensemen, the whole group of defensemen on our team. And he's a great person and, uh, you know, his work ethic is off the charts as well. So, um, yeah, great coaching staff and, and um, can't say enough about it. So where do you go from here, Newell? What, uh, what's next for you? Iron's in the fire. Uh, where are we gonna, <laughs> what bench are we going to see you behind next season? Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's a coach's life, right? Yeah. Uh, we're no, we move to the next, uh, to the next one. Um, yeah. Um, like I said, change is fine. And, uh, you know, I've been talking to some teams and, you know, I'm not afraid to pull my name out of the hat. It has to be a good fit, fit, uh, if, if it's going to work. And I'm, like I said, I'm not afraid to pull my name out of the hat. If, uh, if I'm working on something, doesn't look like it's going to be a good fit. So, um, it's, uh, it, it takes some time and, um, there's a few, few things I'm looking at right now. And hopefully in the next few weeks or so, we'll be able to nail something down. <laughs> oh, well, guys. oh, my pleasure. It's great to talk. Thank you. Appreciate it a lot. Our thanks again, Newell Brown, stopping by and joining us here on the VanCast. Well, Tom, I hope uh, the listeners uh, appreciated that. I know I did. Uh, what a great deep dive into uh, the power play and just some really incredible insight from, from Newell Brown. Yeah, and, you know, I, I the... What, what he was saying specifically about the analytics, and we'll, we'll sort of get into this, uh, Harmon and I, this week, but 
when you look at Vancouver's PP1 before the Pedersen injury, you know, under the hood anyway, it was generating every bit as much uh, last season as it did the year before. It's just with slightly worse shooting luck and no support from PP2. Uh, PP2 scored, what, 20-plus goals for the Canucks in 1920? I think one, maybe two in 2021. Um, a good sort of reminder that having two balanced units is pretty key and, and something that the Canucks are going to need to reconstruct this season based on the talent available to them. Um, I thought that was a particularly interesting quote. And man, does Newell know his stuff about five on four? Yeah, no, I know. Like uh, we joked that sort of, you know, we can nerd out uh, talking Canucks all day, every day throughout <laughs> yeah. the offseason and everything else. And Newell was a perfect fit there because <laughs> just to have the chance to pick his brain and sort of go that deep into the power play. Uh, terrific, terrific stuff. And I had to, I had to put the drop pass on the platter for him oh, there. I know. Awesome. Uh, terrific answer. Yeah, to that as well. Everyone uh, does it. Everyone does it, J-Pat. I'm so annoyed by this particular line of argument. Everyone uses it. No, I know. Teams drop two. Some teams drop two. Yeah, and good teams do it. Like, that's like the teams with successful power plays do it. The Canucks did it when they had a successful power play. Is there a team in the playoffs that doesn't use it? No. I mean, there are variations. Like, you'll see the super long drop pass. And at times, if you're dropping it to McDavid or McKinnon, like, you understand why. Like, give the guy as much ramp as possible. You know, there are times where I I think you'd like to see a guy fake the drop pass, maybe draw somebody out of position, and just carry on. Because it seems like there are times where there's a a direct path to a controlled entry, and guys are conditioned to, you know, just dropping it because it's habit. But whatever, as Newell said, like, I mean, they've all been doing it for a decade now. It's not likely to go away, but I did love that answer about, you know, trying to find the next drop pass, right? Like to to stay ahead of, stay ahead of the curve there. And and the last thing is I did think his self-criticism about the lack of movement on the power play this past year, um, you know, that was was an interesting comment for me anyway, uh, because, you know, clearly when this Canucks power play is working at its best, they're devising all sorts of strange options. And, you know, when you've got four lefties up high as the Canucks have had for most of the time, you know, that they've been really effective. Miller, Petey, Horvat, and, uh, and Hughes, right? It's like, hypothetically anyway, those four should all be interchangeable, um, especially with Hughes's particular skill set. So, you know, uh, there are interesting options for this team going forward. It'll be interesting to see how they deploy, um, you know, for my money though, and make no mistake, despite any criticism that he's taken in this marketplace, most of it unfair in my view. Uh, you know, Newell's one of this game's best minds in terms of devising five-on-four strategy, and I suspect he'll be missed. Yeah, here, here. I agree with you on that. Look, if you're looking for other podcast options here at The Athletic, uh, you're in luck, because I've got a great suggestion for you. Nashville Predators goalie Pekka Rene joins Scott Burnside and Pierre Lebrun on the two-man advantage edition of The Athletic Hockey Show, so we would highly recommend you seek that out And we say this at the end of every VanCast. Check out our comment section for every podcast episode. You can do that at the Athletic app. Drop us a line, feedback, comments, suggestions, you name it. More Newell Brown. We'll take that to heart. We need to make him a regular after uh, this appearance here (laughs) uh, on the VanCast. Hey, rate and subscribe to the VanCast on Apple. If you aren't already a subscriber, go to theathletic.com slash VanCast and receive a subscription for just $3.99 a month. All right, great episode. Uh, our thanks to Newell. It really was uh, an enjoyable uh, almost half hour. We told him we'd keep him 15 to 20, and there was just too much good stuff there. He was on a roll, so uh, hopefully the VIPs enjoyed that as much as uh, we 
Uh, enjoyed delivering it, uh, Tom. Good stuff. Uh, we'll catch up later in the week for our final episode this week of the VanCast here at The Athletic and TheAthletic.com. <laughs>